So this is the Sekhapatipada Sutta in the Majjhimanikaya number 53, looking at the trainee's mode of progress. And now we're looking at devoted to wakefulness, so Jagriyang Anuyuto. So if you remember from our earlier discussion of the, the Sutta, we mentioned the Aparihaniya Sutta, which is in Ankutra Nikaya, chapter 4, and it's the 37th discourse. It's about non-decline. In that Sutta, the Buddha emphasizes that if you have the first four qualities, which are in the Sekhapatipada Sutta, that is, you have Sila Sampano, so you're consummate in virtue. You also have Indriyesu Kututabaro, which is guarding the doors to the sense faculty. And you have this Bojane Matanyu, which is eating moderately. And also, if you have Jagriyang, which is uh, intent on wakefulness, then you're not capable of declining. So you're incapable of decline, and you're in the vicinity of Nibbana. So we've already gone through the first three, and now we're on to the, the fourth one. And as you can see, as you start to develop these foundational qualities, they're very uh, suitable or conducive to developing the trainee path, because you're actually purifying one's physical conduct, one's verbal conduct, one's mental conduct, and you're also developing foundations that enable you to have the supports for the path, the supports in terms of coming to right view, but also in order to maintain a certain level of purity, and that aids concentration and the other parts to the Noble Eightfold Path. The other sutta that we also mentioned at, uh, at the beginning was the Apanaka Sutta, which is basically saying that if you have the three qualities of moderate eating, um, guarding the doors to the sense faculties, and again, this wakefulness, which we're going to go through now, then you're actually practicing a faultless path, the faultless way in line with the Buddhist teachings. And it also lays the groundwork or the foundation for the destruction of the taints, which is pretty major because it is the, the taints being the taint of sensual desire, the taint of becoming, the taint of views, and the taint of ignorance, which is what binds us to sansara. It's good to have at the forefront of our mind, as we look at Jagriyang, wakefulness, that developing these qualities, we're in the vicinity of Nibbana, we're practicing a faultless uh, method, and we're laying the groundwork for the destruction of the taints. And in that way, we're incapable of decline. So if we encourage ourselves to develop in a gradual way, depending on our circumstances and our lifestyles, then at least we know we're heading in the right direction. So let's look at the translation of Jagriyang Anuyuto. So Jagriyang, um, if you translate that to English, it basically means keeping awake. So one is watchful and there's a sense of wakefulness. It could also mean keeping vigil. So you can see it's another way of saying vigilance. And I, su I suppose that when you say keeping vigil, it's in the sense of being quite cautious. Cautious to what? Well, cautious to the dangers that are likely to befall one if you are striving towards this, this path. And when you combine it with anuyuto, jagriyang anuyuto, then what it's saying is one is engaged in uh, keeping awake 
one is applying oneself to being watchful or vigilant. So there's a sense of alertness, wakefulness to, to Jagriyam. So the question we ask ourselves is, what makes a training accomplished in wakefulness, in Jagriyam? And if we go directly back to the Sekhapatapada Sutta and Venerable Ananda's words, then what he, he says in the Sutta is, a disciple of the Noble Ones, sitting and pacing back and forth, cleanses his mind of any qualities that would hold the mind in check. So like we've done before in the other parts um, of this sutta, we'll, we'll look at some of the key words. So it says sitting and pacing back and forth. So when it uses like the term sitting and then pacing back and forth, what it's actually saying is that there's a changing of postures when wakefulness declines. And this could happen when uh, you finish a meal or the middle of the day after you've gone through a whole, uh, whole half of the day and you start to feel weary. It could also be in the early hours of the evening or late into the evening, depending on what you're doing. It could also happen as one is sitting in meditation and uh, different perceptions come to the mind and suddenly you know, there's a heaviness in the body or a drowsiness, dullness in the mind that come, comes over you. So those are examples of when that happens and, and what Venerable Ananda is saying is you change postures. Eating uh, meals are a good example particularly of the link to eating in moderation because if you overeat or you actually indulge in too much food then what happens is you really do start to see how the body gets quite heavy uh, particularly with the digestion process and we did mention that when we were going through Bojane Matanyu. Uh, eating in moderation and so this lethargy comes to the body and then invades the mind because you start to feel quite dull there is drowsiness that comes or even sleepiness at that point you know that it's it's quite good to stand up or go for a walk or to do some walking meditation directly after the meal as we've said before it's good to not go with the feeling of wanting to lie down in initially but to wait and do something else like changing the posture into one of an active posture, not one of recline and then going with that feeling. And afterwards, if the feeling is still there that the body needs to actually lie down in a horizontal position for a while, then at least you won't have that initial drowsiness and you may actually just lie down and rest the body rather than going off into a very, very dull, dull state, which is more like the mamitta or sloth and torpor. So cleansing the mind, this thing that Venerable Ananda is saying, cleansing the mind of any qualities that hold the mind in check. I mean, this really refers to removing the five hindrances, one of which is sloth and torpor. When you cleanse the mind, it doesn't mean you just observe the mind and allow it to be there or allow it to simply pass if it does happen to pass in all cases the buddha emphasizes active application of his medicines and it's not that things easily pass if if you actually investigate what actually happens is it can get worse uh, so you become imbued in the in the hindrance itself and it takes hold and then what happens is you find that you can't free yourself of it what are these medicines that are for cleansing the mind? Well, 
The five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and the doubt. So one by one, if we look at sense desire, kamachanda, well, the medicine that the Buddha gives throughout the suttas is a subhavana. When, when it starts to take hold, what you're wanting to do is meditations like 32 body parts, investigating that, death contemplation, maranonusati, or maybe investigating the nine holes in the body. You have two in the eyes, two in the ears, two in the nostrils, one in the mouth, and then the two lower ones where the excrement and the urine comes from. So you investigate that as well. And then there are other ones as well, like perceiving this body as a bag of impurities. It could also be contemplating the undigested food or over-ripened food or channel ground meditations. So when sense desire takes hold, this karma chanda, then you need to actually apply that medicine and apply it right there at the time. You don't just observe the thoughts of sensual desire and kind of, in a way, hope that they just pass through. It doesn't often happen like that. Uh, what happens is it kind of escalates in the sense of, well, further defilements into the body, such as covetousness and greed, in, in the sense of sensual desire. So then we come to ill will, biapatha, and as we know, the medicine for biapatha and for anger is uh, karaniya metta bhavana. So you would actually go through that sutta and meditate on it and actually through that purify the mind and abandon this ill will and you can see through that process you're actually going through the dasakusala, the wholesome path and there's a clear knowledge pathway in doing the karaniya metta bhavana then you have sloth and torpor which is this thinamitta there are many many different ways of overcoming sloth and torpor but for all intents and purposes for just the simple uh, two that are emphasized the first one is rousing energy, virya. The second is the perception of light, alokasanya. Now, we'll come back to rousing energy a bit further along because dinamita is actually very closely linked to this wakefulness or lack of wakefulness. So we'll come back to that. And then with the perception of light, you know, there are numerous suttas that actually talk about how one actually recalls uh, alokasanya. And one of them is the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, and it's in the fourth chapter of Anguttara Nikaya, the 41st teaching. Basically, the reason why you develop the perception of light to overcome sloth and torpor is because it's almost like this convergence of taking delight in the brightness, having an understanding from that place because of the expansiveness of, of light, because you're removing the dullness, the cloudedness in the mind. And so then there's an alertness and mindfulness that, that takes place or is developed through the perception of light. And it has this way of ending any defilements. What the Buddha says in that particular sutta is if you develop the concentration through the perception of light, then you attain some kind of knowledge and vision. So this is this jnana dasana quality. How you do this perception of light is you resolve your perception on daylight. You develop that whether it's day or night. So even as by day that you see daylight, it's the same that you, you would see at night as daylight. 
And so you develop that perception in quite a strong and concentrated way. That kind of concentration is quite open. So the words that are used in the sutras, it's a very open state. You're unhampered because the lightness suffuses the mind. And it has this way of brightening the mind. And the way you do it is, it's a very gentle meditation. So it's not like you use your will to do this concentration. You can actually do it eyes open or eyes closed as a way of development. And over time you get much more proficient at it. And we'll come back to this as well because there's many places in the suttas where Buddha talks about this perception of light. Then you have restlessness and worry as a hindrance, which is this udacha kukucha. And the medicine or antidote that the Buddha normally gives is samadhi. So coming to calming the mind, because usually the mind is quite unsettled. You have a restless mind. What you need to do is actually calm the mind and uh, develop concentration. Normally what helps is satchadithana, which is a determination for truth. And what this really is, is a quick way of doing it. I mean, there's many ways of calming the mind, but the quickest way of doing it is to contemplate the first noble truth of suffering. Really what this satchadithana, this first determination of truth, is really understanding that everything that is constructed is actually dukkha and this is the fact that when you are born you are subject to old age sickness and death and everything around jatipi is dukkha everything around jara is dukkha everything around maranam is dukkha and so we construct everything around this very faulty state and so when you take in everything that is constructed from views to perceptions to thoughts around these things, what you find is, to use a modern term, it's all fake news, it's all fake stuff that we're focusing on as we go through samsara. And so when you truly do see that, when you investigate through meditation and then you develop the path in daily life and it converges, what you see is, you actually are willing to do this determination for truth, which is saying Nibbana is the only truth. Everything else is constructed. Everything else is Dukkha. But you don't just blindly believe it. You actually do need to do the knowledge pathway meditations in order to truly realize that for oneself. And then uh, a lot of the Buddha's path becomes very clear including such things such as this, why we need to develop wakefulness, it becomes a whole lot clearer why it's supportive to the path. A lot of the path unfolds in a more straightforward manner, I would say, from direct realization or wisdom, when you really see it for yourself. So when you do this uh, determination for truth, such adhikana, that actually helps to calm the mind, helps to concentrate the mind in a wholesome manner. And again, you don't just observe what worry or, or restlessness, you, particularly restlessness. These thoughts don't go away just by observing. You actually need to actively meditate to generate samadhi and to calm the unsettled mind. And then when you make this determination for truth from a place of wisdom by, by reviewing the first noble truth, it actually subdues restlessness. And it actually disappears because one has actually cultivated samadhi. Now when it comes to worry, 
the medicine is, is slightly different. Worry normally comes from akusala mind state, so unwholesome mind state. So one is worrying about things that maybe have blemishes in them from maybe physical, verbal or mental conduct that we have done. And when they, this is the case, observing those thoughts doesn't help at all because you just keep worrying. You just keep going around it in terms of papancha. Uh, the mind just keeps going over and over and one can't even calm the mind from that state of worry. So the thing that Buddha recommends is actually to take a firm decision to acknowledge that whatever you're worrying about is actually unwholesome. So sometimes there's not a way to actually logically work your way out of worry. And so what you need to do is to see that these worries are actually unwholesome mind states and so you take a firm decision around them to actually abandon them, to not pursue such kinds of thoughts or perceptions. And then also to regret, particularly if it's worries over something that you've done, to regret those actions and know that no good, good result will come of them. And so you decide to give it up, that you don't want to do it again. So you make a strong determination or intention. You don't want to, to do such unwholesome conduct again whether it's physical verbal or mental and if you do that three times to actually say that you regret and that you determine not to do it again then that will actually prevent worry recurring and so that's the buddha's medicine for worry so then you come to doubt and doubt is always an interesting one in the sense of this is the doubt of am i doing it the right way as opposed to the doubt about the entire path and this hindrance is Pretty much again looking at wholesome dhammas, kusala dhammas, in order to de determine what's true. And Buddha normally refers to dhamma vavatana, and uh, so you define what is truth and what the Buddha's words are in, in reference to how he says to develop the path, how to overcome certain things. So, in terms of doubt, depending on what doubt arises, you need to apply certain dhammas that you may have heard before directly from the Buddha in the suttas, or it may be an arahant explaining Buddha's words. And, and so you recall it to the mind and you contemplate it in order to give up the doubt. Essentially, what's important to note is that it's very difficult to develop concentration if hindrances are not removed. That's why medicine needs to be actively and immediately applied because the mind becomes very impure, it becomes stained. When it becomes stained, it's very much like what we know of Atupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, Saleka Sutta. You have these stains in the mind and all these suttas, they, these teachings basically say to you, you can't concentrate the mind easily when the mind is so dirty and you have to actively remove them and most of the time it's admitting that they are there first and then you can apply certain medicine or you can actually make a determination to abandon them when the five hindrances particularly are not removed then it's very difficult to develop jhanas people normally ask why can't i develop these higher mental states higher mental states of concentration where you go into these absorptions that people talk about and usually it's because the foundation for where you've, where your mind is, it's not being prepared. So it's not being prepared from a sila perspective with virtue. It's not being prepared in terms of 
how wasn't one hasn't used the security guard to secure the mine so it's been allowed to roam freely so there's a lot of things that it's taken in through the sense doors and the mind has settled in the wrong place or there is uh, no moderation in eating and so one has become imbued with heaviness in the body and dullness in the mind which is a hindrance and so in terms of wakefulness there is no wakefulness it's almost like you have all the odds against you in terms of being able to develop the jhanas. So if you think of this, this these first four qualities of Sekhapatipada, what it's telling you is if you want to get to the four jhanas, which is at the end of the 15 jhana dhammas, there's a knowledge pathway here that the Sekhapatipada is giving, you are laying the foundation in order to develop the jhanas. It's as simple as that, that if you do the work, if you actively start to develop the path in this way, then jhanas are just the, the natural outcome. It's not that you have to actually do them. They are the natural result of this process. The Avijja Sutta, which is in the 10th chapter, it's the 61st discourse in that chapter. This sutta actually, in its knowledge pathway, says that hindrances are the proximate cause for ignorance. So if you want to develop more ignorance, you want to breed more hindrances. So we don't recommend that. This is not Buddha's teaching. But he explicitly tells you how you can, how we are developing more ignorance. And it's really this knowledge pathway that leads to breeding or being in, imbued with hindrances. Then what you're doing is developing more ignorance. And the opposite of that is when you develop bojangas. Now, bojangas are developed through the jhanas. And so when you develop the bojangas, which is the factors of enlightenment, then you're, not, you're no longer developing ignorance. Instead, you're actually developing jnana vimukti, which is the freedom and knowledge pathway. So that's also good to know. Also, if you allow hindrances to take hold, so if you don't cleanse, as Venerable Ananda is saying, uh, when they, they come to the mind, then you're weakening the wisdom that you may have already realized. And you also weaken the wisdom that you're hoping to develop, to re realize like true Dhamma, Sadhamma. And so you don't really, you're not able to develop Jnana Dasana, which is the perfect knowledge and vision that Arahants and the different path and fruit realize. You know, you're obstructed from that. And that's emphasized when you read the Avarana Sutta, which is in Anguttara Nikaya, Chapter 5, uh, Discourse Number 51. It basically says you weaken wisdom because it makes it difficult to realize true Dhamma, and this is the true Dhamma that's realized by noble ones through perfect knowledge and vision. There are other useful suttas if you want to investigate further the Nivaranas, the hindrances. So there's the Maha Asapura Sutta, which is Majjhimanikaya number 39. There's also the Sangharava Sutta, also very uh, lovely similes or examples given in that sutta about the hindrances. That's in Sangyutanikaya, chapter 46, teaching number 55. There's also the Vamika Sutta, which is Majjhimanikaya number 23. It refers to the Nivaranas as the strainer. So very useful to look at that. There's also Avarana Nivarana Sutta, which is um, Sangyuta Nikaya 46, Discourse 38. 
And there's also Nibbana Pahana Sutta, which is in Anguttara Nikaya, chapter 1, teaching number 2. Now, there's many more than that because the Buddha and the Arahants talk about the hindrances a lot because they're such a, a, a problem for all of us. But I won't go through any more there. Investigate for yourselves these suttas and have a look. So then we go back to the Seka Patipada Sutta and Ben Ananda's words. So he says, During the first watch of the night, which is just till 10pm, sitting and pacing back and forth, one cleanses his mind of any qualities that would hold the mind in check. During the second watch of the night, 10pm to 2am, reclining on his right side, he takes up the lion's posture, one foot placed on top of the other. Mindful, alert, with his mind set on getting up, either as soon as he awakens or at a particular time. During the last watch of the night, 2 a.m. till dawn, sitting and pacing back and forth, he cleanses his mind of any qualities that would hold the mind in check. So when we look at these words, it's rather daunting, actually. For lay people, you, you look at these words and and it's good to be reminded that this is the benchmark. This is the upper level of practice. So it's very easy to be intimidated by it. But I would encourage not to view it in that way, as I've said with the other qualities that we've been looking at, that we look at it as a benchmark, but we look at, you know, from our perspective, our circumstances, how we can gradually develop in this direction. So we may not be able to do this. Monastics probably have a better chance of doing this because they don't have jobs and they don't have families to look after in that direct responsibility sense. They've given up their life in order to put Dhamma as their first uh, priority. But as lay people, you know, it's also possible for us to develop. I and mean, clearly it is because Sekhapati Bada is given to lay people. What we need to do is understand what Venerable Ananda is saying first. But then we need to look at how we can move in that direction. And what I'll go through is some of the things that have been said in other parts of the Sutta Pitika in order to develop wakefulness, but also to, to contemplate and investigate practical things we can do and, and, and consider. And you can listen to it from the perspective of, ah, oh, okay, can I apply that to my lifestyle, to my circumstances? Uh, what can I can I do and what can't I do? I think it's useful to know what you can't do because then at least you have a line of sight to where you potentially want to get to but you can't even as a lay person right now but maybe other lay people can. But it's useful to acknowledge that you can't and to gradually look at over time make an intention that you want to and how you can tweak certain things in one's lifestyle and how you can make moral agreements within the household about what you're both or, or as a family willing to do to help each other. So let's look at first watch. So first watch is dusk to 10 p.m. It's sitting and pacing back and forth, so there's the changing of posture, and then there's the cleansing of the mind of inequalities that will keep the mind in check. So cleansing the mind of hindrances and defilements, but mainly the hindrances. The second watch is the 10 p.m. to 2 p.m. and this is the the time that you know one can take sleep, so light sleep, but it's not deep sleep. So that's one thing to note, which we'll come to again. And 
one is still mindful and alert. So this is Venerable Ananda's emphasizing uh, one is still mindful and alert. And the third thing in this thing is you're ready to get up as soon as one awakens or at, at the given time. So we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this one more. And then the third watch is 2 a.m. to dawn. And again, it's very similar to the first watch. It's the changing of posture. So you see it if you start to feel that the wakefulness wanes, you, you get up and either stand or you pace back and forth. And the thing is you also cleanse for, for the hindrances. So basically you apply the medicine that we were going through before if any of those things take hold. Now, it's, it's important not to be turned off by this, not to think, oh, it's too hard and, and kind of have a bit of a whinge about it. It's good to see this as the goal and, and, and look at how we can gradually train. So I'll go through a few things that I think are particularly useful when it comes to the considerations, uh, maybe some suttas that I think are also useful and, and some practical considerations. So the first thing I wanted to kind of emphasize is that Wakefulness, jagriyang, should not be underestimated. Because if you look at Buddha's words, and there's one particular saying of the Buddha, and it's in the Itibhutaka, it's number 47, it's the jagriyang sutta, so the, so the sayings or the, his words on wakefulness. I'll read out that sutta because it's very clear. What he says is, a monk should be wakeful, he should abide mindful, attentive, mentally composed, very glad, Right and there, at the suitable time, cultivate wholesome Dhamma. If one does so, one of two fruits can be expected. Perfect knowledge, which refers to arahantship, in this present existence, or, if still dependent on existence, i.e. certain fuel for life through the aggregates, the skandhas, then the state of non-returning. So the reason why I say wakefulness should not be underestimated, because if a monk or even a lay person practices wakefulness and is, is really wakeful, then the Buddha is saying that one has the right kind of mind state in order to realize this Dhamma to either become an Arahant in this life or realize Anagami. So that's no small feat. It's really, really powerful statement from the Buddha. Now, lay people have a lot more things in their lives than monastics so it's more apparent that a monastic would uh, get there faster whereas a lay person probably has to refine and probably over time gradually come to a lifestyle that is suitable for being wakeful and you'll understand why when I go through the next few things but it is possible you, you can kind of see that if you Realize through wisdom why wakefulness is important, that you would gradually arrange your life into a particular way or plan for it in order to have these things in place and then one can be wakeful even at home. But if, if certain things are not in place, then it, it is quite challenging. That, that needs to be admitted. So there's, there's a few more things. But it's, it's good to initially understand that wakefulness is not to be underestimated. It's actually quite key both to what the Buddha says is in terms of what you can realize in this life, but also to the development of this sekapa, this, this trainee's mode of progress. The other area, there's a few areas that I wanted to look at. There's three. So there's 
The first one is few duties, projects or responsibilities. The second is moderation in eating, which we've covered before. And then the moderation in sleep and right effort. So four things in particular. So I'll start with having few duties, projects or responsibilities. Now, it's often stated as important that in order to be vigilant or wakeful, um, having fewer duties is actually supportive of that. Now, when you have less duties and responsibilities, i.e. less activity, basically you're less weighed down, your day is less full, you're less weighed down with worldly concerns because most of our duties and responsibilities have this connection to the world. They're very worldly, whether it's running errands, looking after our families, going to work, dealing with the news of the world, dealing with the impingement of the world, basically. And so, you know, it makes you quite tired. That's one thing. And it also makes you quite heavy in the mind. The mind is, is filled with things. So you think about mental checklists, mental responsibilities, mental reminders. So that's not very conducive to being wakeful or vigilant in the sense of Dhamma. It's actually more on the samsaric side that one gets weighed down by. Also, you need more fuel in order to undertake your duties. So from a food perspective, to run this engine, this body, one needs more, more food. And also on the side of being tired and weighed down with duties, you use food as a mechanism for relieving the dukkha that you experience by being so busy. And out of dukkha, you take this antidote. One can often overeat or overindulge in sense desires, you know, out of distraction or take other distractions such as sports or TV, or you can see how one would unrestrain the sense doors. Because there is dukkha, you, you normally turn to things that we've turned to before, rather than the, the, the antidotes or the medicine that Buddha gives. That's our go-to scenario. And when that's the case, then you can see that if you do things like that, sloth and torpor normally takes hold and wakefulness diminishes. There are suttas where the Buddha actually confirms the link. There is the Dukkha Akupa Sutta, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya. It's in Chapter 5, and it's the 96th teaching. And with this teaching, it's basically talking about how you can make your practice quite unshakable. And there are five factors that will help you to realize that through the practice of Anapanasati. So... I don't want to focus on Anapanasati here, but I want to focus on the five factors that the Buddha raises, because this applies to any kind of meditation, really, that if you have the wrong supports, then you won't be able to develop the path properly, you won't be able to release the mind in the right way. And so the first one of the five factors is one of few duties. Uh, I'll read the words, actually, that's probably better. It says, One of few duties and projects, easy to support, easily contented with the requisites of life. That's the first factor. What it's saying, it's a bit, it's a bit like Karaniya Metta Sutta. Karaniya Metta Sutta encourages few duties, being easy to support, being easily contented. Apakichocha, Suborocha, Salahukabuti. Those are the Pali words. And... Clearly, it's a good factor to be endowed with because, one, when you have few duties, all those things that I was mentioning before don't inflict their pain on you. 
and one also becomes easy to, to support and easily contented. It's like that simplicity in, of life rather than complexity, that whatever you, you're able to get through your, your work, whatever you already have, you, you just use quite carefully. And whatever people give you when you go visit their home, that's good enough. And you don't aspire to compete with your neighbours and have the keeping up with the Joneses mindset and try to try to do those sorts of things. So it, that, that one is one of the factors. The second factor is eating only a little, committed to not indulging through your stomach. That's the second factor. The third factor is a person not having very much drowsiness or torpor. The uh, fourth one is committed to wakefulness. So wakefulness is one of those factors. And the fifth one is uh, someone of much learning, that you retain what you've heard of the Dhamma, you store it, and you reflect on it in your mind, and then the mind is able to release. So you can see these five factors, they're really in line with the Sekhapadipada Sutta. And you can see where even what we're talking about being one of few duties, how it is also very supportive, and of course wakefulness is there, and Bojanemipanyu, moderation is eating in eating is also there and also not having much torpor or drowsiness is also there so not having that hindrance so you can see the links between all of these these factors to support the path there's one other sutta i wanted to mention which is the parihana sutta it's about decline it's in anguttara nikaya number eight and it's the 79th discourse this one is also very, very interesting because it talks about what leads to the decline in one's practice, particularly of a trainee. And in, in the case of this suit, there was a trainee mendicant, a trainee bhikkhu. And there are eight things, and you'll, you'll be interested to note that Indriyesu Kutadavaro is in there. So when you don't guard the sense adores to the, that's there. When you eat too much, that's also there. But then there are also six other qualities. So the karma ramatha, which is too much activity. So it's a bit like having too many duties and responsibilities. Too much activity. Karma ramatha. There's also basa ramatha, which is too much useless talk. There's also nidaramatha, so too much sleep. There's also sanganika ramatha, so associating with too much company. Always wanting to be around people. Always wanting to be busy with people. And then um, there's the uh, samsa garamata. Samsa garamata, yeah. So that's the you relish intimacy or closeness. And uh, then the last one is papancha ramata, which is you, you just indulge in thoughts, you know, mental proliferation. So good to note that of the qualities, the one about guarding the doors to the sense faculties is there, Borjanemapanyu is there, and then all these other qualities that lend themselves to hindrances are there, and sleep is, is one of them, and activity, so very useful sutta to contemplate why this leads to decline. We go on to moderation and eating. We've covered this before, but when you overeat, as we've said before, it's difficult to stay awake. It's difficult to, to, be, to be alert. So that's why we don't want to overeat. 
Likewise, you know, you tend to head towards hindrances when you overeat. The body and the mind becomes quite heavy and drowsy, quite lethargic, not much energy. And therefore, there's a real challenge in rousing energy. If, if you remember this feeling of when you overeat, say you go for a buffet and you come home, normally the in inclination is to sit in a luxurious seat or to go and have a little lie down. Oh, I'll take a little kip. And, and so at that point, the mind is quite compelled to, to take that lie down and it's quite compelled to actually just go off into, into mindless states. And, and so when you try at that moment to rouse energy, it is absolutely one of the worst times to rouse energy because you've basically drugged the body. It's trying to digest and uh, process the food. And the mind is not far behind that. So you then fall prey to hindrances and defilements. The concoction is quite clear. And even if you contemplate arising from sleep after overeating, you don't usually feel very good after that kind of sleep because it's not a good sleep. The body's been quite busy trying to digest the food. And so what you'll notice is the mind is quite blurred. It's quite dull and the body is still quite heavy because it's done so much work in trying to process and digest the food. So you, it's not a particularly good sleep either. The best kind of sleep is normally when there is nothing in the body. It's been processed and it's in the early hours of the morning where it gets its best sleep. And that's probably why the second watch is where uh, Venerable Ananda was saying you take this light sleep and it's mindful and alert. And so you don't need much but you, you actually can, can get up feeling quite alert. So moderation in sleep is a real problem, and so we'll, we'll have a little, little look at that. Clearly, Venerable Ananda advises for sleep to be taken sparingly. We're not meant to indulge in sleep, and the Buddha says that one who is fond of sleep, as well as fond of activity, fond of useless talk, fond of restlessness, the Buddha actually says that that person cannot attain Nibbana. Quite a shocking statement when you think about it, but it makes sense. If you want to indulge in activity, keep busy all the time. If you want to have endless chatter about all sorts of things, and particularly not about Dhamma, uh, which is Dhamma being the truth. And if you're constantly restless, which means that you're fidgeting and, and likely want to go and do something, and you, you love your sleep, then how can that be conducive for the Noble Eightfold Path? Of course not. It's actually more conducive to coming back to samsara. So it makes sense when Buddha says that if you have the, that, those tendencies and you're developing those tendencies and see no wrong with those tendencies, you would uh, not be able to attain Nibbana. But for us seekers, it's actually good to know that those are the qualities not to be developed because if we are really wanting to get out of samsara then we want to take less sleep we want to not be so busy in order to be more conducive to the path and we want to, to actually end a lot of or most of this chatter that is useless and, and to actually have a more calm settled state of mind rather than restless so sleep, particularly long and deep sleep, it means that we are no longer alert, we are no longer taking vigil, 
And basically, long and deep sleep normally means there are dreams or disturbances that take hold in the mind. And as we've said before, hindrances and defilements uh, can enter the mind at that moment and take hold. And sloth and torpor, you, you basically don't want to come out of sleep. So in essence, when, when the alarm goes off or when you wake up, there's that feeling like, oh, I'll hit the snooze button. And, and you won't have that quality that, that Venerananda is saying, that you immediately will get up out of the bed once you awaken. No, you will hit the snooze button and want the mind to continue back into sleep. And so you, you, don't, you don't have that, that quality. And, and really, you can see that you need to develop it. It's not something that you can just, oh, at some point in time, it will just happen. No, you actually have to make an intention towards it. As with most things, you have to make an intention if you want to give up keeping busy, if you want to give up overeating, if you want to give up moderation, you have to actually have an intention towards it. Then you make a plan. How can I literally do this? And literally you can't do it overnight. You have to gradually reduce. A bit like Buddha's advice to King Kosala in the Dhanapaka Sutta when we were talking about Bojanema Thanyu, you gradually reduce. You can't do it all straight away. And over time, you can actually come to a place where, in King Kosala's example, he managed to slim down because he reduced over time. And so with all of these things, even with sleep, it's not a case of, okay, I'm just going to be taking you know, four hours of sleep or six hours of sleep, just like that, if you normally take eight, nine, ten hours of sleep. It has to be this process of, okay, I'm going to be able to take one hour less. Or I'm not going to take that afternoon nap. Or I'm going to make a determination to not hit the snooze button six times, three times, or even once. You know, So you gradually reduce and, and, and you see how it goes. So clearly sleep is not recommended by the Buddha, particularly deep sleep and particularly lots of sleep. There's a little thing in the Dhammapada that I came across that was quite visual when, when you look at the words of the Buddha. And it was about elephants. Buddha was talking about Nagavaka, which is this whole part about elephants. But there was one paragraph, and I think it was Dhammapada 325. The Buddha was saying that when you eat too much, as in you, you, you're practicing gluttony, and when you like the state of drowsiness, then it's literally like um, sleeping and rolling around, lying about. And it's, it's like a fat pig or a fat hog. And so all you do is you keep nourishing on, on fodder, on, on food. And so you become this foolish person. And this foolish person, what is their, their, their outcome? They keep coming back to the womb again and again. So that's what awaits you. So if you're someone and you do hear about people, oh, I just love to eat and sleep. You know, haven't we heard that before in the world? Oh, I just love eating and sleeping. That's the best part of my day. I just live to eat and sleep. Well, this person, the Buddha calls a foolish one, who will be bound to come back into the mother's womb, samsara, over and over again. One will not have even good destination, basically bad destination. And Buddha likens you 
or that kind of person to a fattened pig who uh, keeps eating and eating. Quite shocking, really, when you when you hear Buddha's words like that. It, I think it's meant to shock you, because if you do take delight in sleep and, and gluttony, then you're meant to be kind of disrespected in that way. You know, and you're meant to take it as a good kind of feedback, because then it's meant to wake you up to say, "Don't do that. It's not recommended on this path." If you truly devoted to developing the path, if you truly see some truth in what Buddha is saying in the Four Noble Truths and, the, and that includes the Noble Eightfold Path, then you really need to, to make haste and to apply the Buddha's knowledge pathways and medicines. The other thing that Buddha says about wakefulness is that if you have it, then you have better sleep, but also you have no fear. And what does Buddha refer to in terms of fear? Well, the, the, in the ultimate sense, it's, it's fear of going to bad destination, fear of the repercussions of unwholesome conduct. So one who is wakeful has a quicker development of the path. So it's good to know. Sleep is considered as slothful by the Buddha. So when you have that, you're really giving the foundation, the food for the hindrance of sloth and torpor. And there's the Ahara Sutta, which is in the Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 46. It's the 51st discourse. In that discourse, Buddha spells out what it means, like what are the factors that nourish the hindrance of sloth and torpor. So in that, it says, the nutriment for the arising of unarisen sloth and torpor and for the increase and expansion of arisen sloth and torpor. So this is like if you don't have sloth and torpor, then... This is the food that makes it come into being. And if you already have it, this is what increases it and expands it. There are uh, five, five or six things. So the first one is discontent. So in Pali, that's arati. Tandi in Pali, which is lethargy, something like tiredness. There's also vijambita, which is translated as fidgeting or some kind of lazy postures or stretching. And then Bhattasamadhu, uh, drowsiness after meals. And then this Chetaso Chalinatang, which is you have a very sluggish mind. Now these are all very familiar qualities that we've already been speaking about when we speak about sloth and torpor and drowsiness and being unwakeful. But it's also the last quality is Buddha says you don't have wise attention, so you have careless attention to all these things. And in Pali, that's Ayoniso Manisikara Bahulikaro. So you frequently indulge in discontent and complaints, and, and kind of a negativity is what Arati is. And you indulge in being tired and lethargic, you indulge in fidgeting and. and kind of like the postures that you would lay about on the couch or, or slouch and that kind of develop the wrong, the wrong state of mind. And definitely, you know, drowsiness after meals, you're not applying the medicine of walking meditation or just going for a walk. And sluggishness of mind, you just allow this drowsiness to take hold, this lethargy. And so the mind, you, you allow it to remain sluggish. They, this could also be like you watch TV and TV has this way of 
keeping you in a very dull mind state. And, and so you continue to create that habit of doing it. Or even certain other, other things that you take in through the senses, certain smells, certain uh, tastes, uh, certain sounds. You might listen to certain music that just keeps you in a particular mind state, which is this sluggish mind. That's where it's good to investigate where Buddha says these are the inputs to sloth and torpor and sustaining and expanding sloth and torpor. It's good to know. And so when you know that, you need to explore, am I, you know, where is it for me? What, what, what is it in my lifestyle that supports that? Because if you are doing these things, maybe take a look at one or two that you can start reducing. So not fully giving up if you can't do it, but just reducing or testing out whether it's true for that kind of music, that kind of programming. If you think about TV, they talk about TV programming. Well, it's all programming. And what's it programming for? It's programming for the five hindrances because what they project onto the screen is something that makes you want to covet something, you know, sense desire, or it's something that makes you angry, breeds ill will, or it's something that keeps you in a very dull mind state. Or it keeps you quite restless, you know, you're, you're contemplating, is it this way or that way? Is this politics good or is that politics good? Is this way of making something good or is that way of making something good? Is this the truth about health, that, that particular ideology or another one? Is this diet better than another diet? So whatever they project onto the TV screen or through internet media, it's actually keeping you in hindrances. And then doubt as well, you know, doubt about a whole lot of things, not just the Buddha Dhamma, but a whole lot of things. But when you go into that kind of doubt, you're doubting Buddha Dhamma anyway, because you're imbued with samsaric ideas and, and concepts. And so very interesting to look at how we are programmed when we don't restrain our sense faculties. So there's a lot there. The other thing about getting sleepy that I find most useful, that I do actually apply, is Buddha's advice to Venerable Mahamogalana about getting sleepy or nodding off. So it's that sutta. Let me see what the reference is. It's Anguttara Nikaya, chapter 7, uh, discourse number 61. And this is about nodding off, falling asleep. Venerable Mahamogalana was meditating and he was struggling with sleepiness and this was prior to becoming an arahant. And the Buddha visited him knowing that he was getting sleepy or drowsy. And so he gave him a teaching and in fact it was seven ways of overcoming drowsiness. And they're very practical methods. And you can see that Buddha says to Venerable Mahamogalana that if one doesn't work, you try the next one. If that one doesn't work, you try the next one. So the seven are, the first one is, whatever perception that came to your mind that made you drowsy or for this drowsiness to overcome you, then you don't attend to that perception, you don't pursue it. So essentially that's saying, whatever perceptions that were in your mind when drowsiness came, abandon them. Don't keep on with that perception. It could be anything. It could be, could have been food. It could have been work. It could be responsibilities. It could be some kind of perception and thought that was in the mind when you started to get sleepy. Buddha recommends abandoning it straight away. Now, if that doesn't work, Buddha says, recall the Dhamma. Recall his teachings 
as you've heard, so it could be a sutta, it could be a knowledge pathway, it could be a gatha, so a chant. And recall it as, as you've heard it and as you've memorized it and re-examine it. So contemplate it and ponder it in your mind. So do a contemplation of the Dhamma. Now, if that doesn't work, then the Buddha says, repeat out loud in detail that Dhamma as you've heard and memorized it. So uh, the, the, the second one was, you know, you, you contemplate in your mind. So that didn't work. So he says, actually, repeat it out loud. So there's a more active part to this third one. Now, if that doesn't work, the repeating out loud, the Dhamma, then pull both your earlobes and rub your limbs with your hands. So here he's saying something even more physical. So it's escalating. He's saying, pull your earlobes. Now, the earlobes are said to contain certain uh, links to different parts of the body. So when you rub them or pull them, then you're activating those nerve endings that would invigorate the body. And same with rubbing your limbs. Like when you rub your limbs, your arms, your legs, you're act actually activating the, the nervous system, kind of awakening it. So that's probably why Buddha is saying it. But other than that, it's also something more active to actually... Uh, awaken you now if that doesn't work then what buddha says is to get up from your seat and go and wash your eyes out look in all directions like in a broad sense not to latch on to anything but just to kind of roll your eyes around to to kind of wake up after washing them out and that should work and then if that doesn't work the sixth one is to attend to the perception of light so we covered that before. So it's basically that resolving on the perception of daylight and you make it, you, you, you develop the perception of light to the extent that even uh, during the day, that kind of daylight, you, you're able to perceive at night and then you have quite a broad mind state. And in many ways, once you start developing it, you, you actually recognize it as a very bright and mind state. The difference between sloth and torpor and, say, samadhi is that sloth and torpor, it's very dull and very clouded. And it may seem spacious at times and may seem broad, but there's no wisdom in it. I think that's the difference. Whereas samadhi has a brightened mind, a very light mind. There's a very distinct quality when you check the, the, the state of the inamitta and the state of samadhi particularly summer samadhi and with the bojangas activated. The mind is very expansive, it's very luminous, and at the same time, it comes from a place of wisdom, wakefulness. There are people who go into samadhi, and not necessarily summer samadhi, because concentration was there before the Buddha, but they haven't activated the enlightenment factors through the jhanas, and so they actually... Although they're in samadhi and there may be no thoughts, it's a very dull mind state. There may not be full wisdom available to the person doing that kind of meditation. So the perception of light can be a useful activation for actually having more brightness. And the last one, so if the perception of light does not work and you still feel sleepy, then the Buddha says, perceive what's in front and behind you so you have gotten up. And set a distance for walking meditation, basically. Do the walking meditation, not taking in the characteristics of what's around you, but just 
allow the mind to gently rest inwardly and do the walking meditation. So that's the seventh one. So very practical advice for overcoming drowsiness and being able to stay wakeful. The other one that I wanted to quickly cover was right effort. So if you remember when I talked about the hindrances, rousing energy, similar to right effort, is really important. So what is right effort? So some of Vayama. This is the active process of maintaining wakefulness, generating and maintaining wakefulness. You need this kind of arousing energy, this right kind of effort, because it's really about skillful and unskillful states. Because unskillful states mean that you're heading towards the path of ignorance, whereas wholesome states lend themselves to developing the path towards jnana vimukti, the knowledge and liberation, uh, that which helps you to develop path and fruit. Right effort, samavayama, if you recall, is about if there are no unarisen akusala states, so the unskillful, unwholesome states, then you want to prevent them, the non-arising of them. And if they are there, so if they have arisen, unwholesome states have arisen, then you want to immediately abandon them. You don't just go leave them there. You don't just observe them. There's an active component of either simply abandoning them or making an intention or applying some of Buddha's medicine. And then from a skill state's perspective, actually actively developing them, cultivating them. And that could be through formal meditation or it could be through intention, one sila. The fourth one in terms of right effort is if you have developed skillful states, and this includes path and fruit, then you want to protect it, you want to maintain it. And how do you do that? You do it by these qualities that we're looking at in Seka Paripada Sutta, that part of the trainee's process is, is protecting and maintaining skillful states. And you do that by sila sampano, by cultivating good sila and also developing higher sila gradually and by restraining the sense faculties, by having that security guard in place because you know why you don't want to allow the senses to roam freely. And then it's by moderation in eating and wakefulness. So it's, it's actually quite clear. Buddha also talks about these elements of energy as well when it comes to Thinamitta, when it comes to Sloth and Torpa. And he spells out pretty much essentially what he's saying is that you want to keep attempting to rouse energy. So the arousing of energy never stops. So even throughout the day, like when you are about to embark on something that is physically unwholesome, like will break your sila, you need to actually stop and, and contemplate, is this the right thing to do? So that's why it's like you keep attempting to check on yourself and arouse energy to go against unwholesome conduct. This applies to physical conduct, verbal conduct, mental conduct. The second thing that he says is to, to, to persist, to endure having to overcome unwholesome states. It's not easy because our habitual tendency and why we came back to samsara is out of wrong view, which is an unwholesome mental state. And from that, we, we keep continuing our unwholesome states of killing living beings, taking what's not being given, misusing our senses. So that's the physical conduct. The verbal conduct is we still keep to our habit tendencies of divisive speech, harsh speech, empty speech, and then telling lies, telling untruths. And so 
you know, when you keep doing that, you keep cultivating the wrong habits because we've, we've learned it, we've done it before, it seems to be the right thing to do, then the, the cycle it keep, goes on. And same with ill will and covetousness. If we don't do some of these formal meditations to actually overcome covetousness and ill will, such as Karaniyamitha Sutta or any of these Patipadas that Buddha talks about, the painful ways and the, and the uh, pleasing ways, then we will never be able to get out of samsara, never be able to create a pathway that leads to a good destination. And, and so we need to exert effort. So that's the third element of energy that Buddha talks about, which is we need to keep exerting ourselves and showing courage towards this endeavor. And of course, Yonisomanisakara, wise attention, is very important in this because without wise attention, it falls through the gaps. Yonisomanisakara is such a key thing to the knowledge pathway because only with Yonisomanisakara, the careful attention, wise attention, do we actually start to develop Sati Sampajanya. Without that, we will keep falling for the perversions of beauty of pleasure or happiness, of taking it as me and mine, and also thinking things are permanent, that they'll last. When we clearly know, in the ultimate sense, things really don't last. We're subject to old age, sickness and death. In that sense, there's a lot that Buddha emphasizes about this being a very active and energy-driven process. That's the, the areas that are quite key when it comes to wakefulness. And in our daily lives, there's a lot that we get bogged down with. And so I wanted to just quickly go through practicalities, practical things we can do outside of formal meditation. The thing that I wanted to make a point about is that we want to actually develop this path and fruit. So Sotapanna, you know, stream enter, there's path and fruit. Sakadagami, once return, there's path and fruit. Anagami, there's path and fruit. And then Arahantship, of course, there's also path and fruit. And so you see there's a development process. We're on a development course. But the course is the same for everyone. There's not one course for Sotapanna, one course for Anagamis, one course for Arahants. Even the practice of one who is already an Arahant is the same. The Arahant practices what we are trying to practice as a Seka in the Seka Patipada Sutta. It's no different. So take that as an encouragement that whatever we are able to do at this moment, whatever we are able to do into the future is all helpful. So if you normally keep five precepts and from time to time you keep eight, that's most helpful. You're doing well to do that. If you do a lot of formal meditation, particularly of the Buddha's knowledge pathways in the right way, then that's very useful. But if you are also looking and examining, investigating your daily life and how to tweak and gradually change your habit tendencies, that's very useful. Because what I see is that from experience, it's very important to do the formal meditation. So these are like the Dukkha Patipada Dhanda Binya, Dukkha Patipada Sukha Akipa Binya. Then you have the Sukha Patipada so the painful ways and the pleasant ways, both slow and quick realizations. If you know these meditations, they're very, very good to do because 
they enable you to also uproot asavas eventually. And a lot of wisdom comes from these meditations. But then at the same time, if you do cutting Niyamitta Bhavana the right way, then you also correct your view. You also purify the mind. Many of these formal meditations, even the ones that I've spoken about, Pamata Vihari Sutta, the uh, Pethakobodesa uh, meditation about agreeable and disagreeable and neither agreeable nor disagreeable objects, they're all very useful in correcting one's view. And from correcting the view, you get the right intention, you get the right conduct, and therefore you get the right effort, mindfulness, and the right concentration. And when you do that, then what happens is you get the right knowledge and eventually you get the right liberation, which is the tenfold path. So that's the formal meditation. Now on the daily life part, people normally say, how can I, how can I do this in daily life? Well, Seika Padipada is actually demonstrating a lot of the practical ways you can actually start to improve towards the path in daily life. And I think when these two things converge, when what you do in formal meditation converges with what you make effort towards in your daily life, these subtle changes, these gradual changes of one's habits towards wakefulness or towards moderation in eating, towards guarding the doors to the sense faculties, towards higher sila, when they converge and they can be small improvements to begin with, then what happens is you're actually seeing evidence for yourself of this training. And not only that, you're starting to develop a real manifestation of the Buddha's teachings. Because when they actually align, what you do in formal meditation becomes what you manifest in daily life. Now, we can't do that yet. Only an arahant can because an arahant is perfect. Sekas are imperfect. We haven't completed the path. We're still with defilements. At times, a lot of wrong view. When they converge, then you fully manifest as or in accordance with the Buddha's teaching. And that can, I think, can be a very beautiful thing. Because when you look at both lay people and monastics who are starting to converge, you can see that they have changed over time you can actually see the beauty in the Buddha's teaching. You can see the evidence that it works. And I know lay people and I know the monastics who are walking this path, this Sekhapatipada path, and who are meditating formally, but also manifesting in a way that is, which actually can be perceived as correct. And it's a very beautiful thing. It's very inspiring. So rather than guilt over our practice, this convergence actually helps to give you evidence. So, for example, if you take eight precepts at home, that's your evidence that you are developing because you manage to do it regularly, at once a month or once every few months, or if you're lucky, once a week or more. As a layperson, if you actually start to change some of your habit tendencies around food, if you start to have more indriya sangvara, that you actually more restrained, it's very notice, noticeable in lay people when they're not always with their senses out, you know, always following the sound, always following the sights, always indulging in sense material. And mm-hmm. when you see that, you actually think, wow, this person is really developing. 
and and for oneself you can see that too and so I think at that point you overcome almost like the despondency that enters you know where you you beat yourself up rather than beat yourself up you pat yourself on the back and say I'm trying you know I'm actually trying and I'm developing and this is good and even when you start to question am I breaking sila from doing this or that that's a sign of someone who is developing the path because one who doesn't even have that question arise means that you're not learning dhamma as the buddha taught and you're not trying to refine your sila to take it to the next level so i would be heartened by the fact that when you question and you ask a, a, a dhamma friend or you ask a teacher or you check in the suttas is this what the buddha means am i breaking a precept that's a sign of development because in the past maybe we wouldn't have asked that question so one should be heartened and encouraged by those kinds of changes in how we live that we question whether we are breaking sila that we aspire to better sila that we want to be better examples to our community that we consider maybe the noble ones are watching us and would they consider that to be a good thing uh, would they condone uh, what we are doing physically verbally and mentally depending on where we we are having troubles i think we need to start somewhere and i think that it's a gradual process and so when you think about how can i do this in everyday life when it comes to wakefulness there's many things we can do so i'll talk about just um some tips and each person is different so as i say this just remember that each person's lifestyle their circumstances their family situation their work situation their financial situation is different and so take on board some of these explanations with that in mind that even though you may not be able to do it now just know that this may be something you could try in the future and it's just useful to know you sort of admit that your circumstances are not supportive of certain things right now and maybe if you are inclined that way then you could make a plan of how you can make that happen and take small steps there's nothing wrong with taking small steps but take at least one step you know in that direction so the first area is what we talked about about too much activity or too much in terms of responsibilities and duties and alongside that is also too much talk so i think one of the things in terms of too much activity is planning ahead when we do things in mundane life we we often schedules and calendars and things so i would say schedule in pockets of time for quietness for meditation and particularly for not doing actively plan time for not doing now initially it could be 5 10 minutes even that for some people is a lot other times it could be half a day it could be a full day it could be a weekend where you actually say i'm not going to do anything that relates to everyday duties and responsibilities and you've got permission from the people that you live with or the people you live with are agreeing to do it with you and 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 you schedule it in it's also having an intention about wanting to do so like you see the merits of why you don't want to have too much activity and you make time for it the other thing to do is in terms of household duties you finish them off early it's good not to keep active at night 
don't be if, if if your circumstances you can do this but plan not to be cooking and cleaning and washing and all this sort of stuff late into the night make it more that you have more time to wind down earlier make agreements within your household to share duties sometimes some people take on more and it's unnecessary make make commitments because it's for the betterment of everyone that everybody has sufficient time to wind down and quiet the mind and, and do less. Other times you can actually carve out specific time for going on retreats. If you're inclined, then going to monasteries or having practice days at home. Viveka is not just physical solitude. Buddha talks about Chitta Viveka as well, this solitude one takes in mind. And so you can have days where you have no, no media days, you know, no TV, no internet. You take a social media holiday, you take an internet holiday, you take a visual object holiday. And so Chitta Viveka is very, very useful. And then as part of that, you assess what was it like when I actually took that holiday? How was the mind? Was the mind bright? Was the mind light? Was the mind able to cognize more of Buddha's teaching in an easier manner? And, and look at how you feel after you commit to to reducing your duties and committing towards someone. So it's not about taking time to then go and indulge in sloth and torpor. It's about reducing the time in order to actually have time to reflect on Dhamma or even to have quietness, not doing. And in terms of too much talk, it's useful to actually give up late night phone calls. You make a kind request to people that you don't talk after a certain time. Sometimes people talk into the, the very, very late hours of the night and so when you do that, it makes it very difficult to take the worldly matters out of your mind when you listen to people's problems or you're talking about worldly matters. And so when you go and lie down on the bed, your mind is very active. So you either can't get to sleep or you have very difficult sleep, unsettled sleep. And that's not very conducive to the path. And you pretty much will hit the snooze button when it goes off because you don't feel like you have good sleep. It's always good to go to sleep with karinya metta in your mind because, you know, two of the blessings of karinya metta is that you go to sleep easily and well and you wake up easily and well and you're not disturbed by dreams. Uh, the same thing applies to studying. If, if you study, people often think, oh, I need to study for hours and hours and hours and I'll just keep putting the information in and memorizing it. The truth is, is that if you have a mind that is bright, that is somewhat quiet and empty, not imbued with worldly matters, more imbued with uh, the truth, then when you do actually sit down and ingest the information that you're studying, you'll find that you can study for less time. And when it comes to recalling and retrieving, even understanding what you're memorizing or, or, or studying, it's easier, it's quicker. And so it, it's quite good to actually study after meditation not before and or, or, or meditate create a meditation practice so that your studying becomes easier the other thing you can do in terms of speech is to take a speech holiday or if you can't take a speech holiday because you have family commitments and all that sort of thing reduce or refrain from certain topics or start to not everything but start to, to reduce because you know they're troublesome to the mind. And, and those types of topics are quite apparent. Buddha talks about 27 different kinds of speech that we should refrain from. And that includes politics and heads of state and the police and the armies and gossip and 
all kinds of things, you know, there's 27 of them. And when you do indulge in that kind of speech, it's normally either divisive or it's empty, or clearly most of it is untrue in, in the ultimate sense of Buddha Dhamma. So those are some examples. There are probably more, but there's some there to start with. Now, in terms of overcoming drowsiness, we have Buddha's advice to Venerable Mahamogalana, the seven things that he said. So the perception that was in your mind when drowsiness came, abandon that as quickly as possible. If that doesn't work, then contemplate Dhamma as you memorized it. Or if that doesn't work, recite it out loud, that, that Dhamma. If that doesn't work, then pull your ears and rub your limbs. If that doesn't work, then get up and go and wash your eyes and uh, look around uh, to wake up. If that doesn't work, then take the perception of light. And if that doesn't work, then do walking meditation. So those are very, very practical when it comes to drowsiness. But clearly they're about changing posture, brightening the mind. I would also add to that, at times, like depending on where you live, sometimes if you're too hot, it's good to just have a quick quick shower. It really invigorates. And if you're in a cold climate, then sometimes if you're too cold and you're finding that you're struggling because you're cold, you can't warm up your extremities, like your hands and your feet, just go and have a really hot shower and, and at least you'll, you'll reduce the discomfort in the body. The other thing that is recommended is always nature. Nature has a way of illuminating the mind and there's also natural daylight grounding yourself by walking barefoot maybe doing walking meditation in the grass so nature is very helpful and not to indulge in nature by going into the birds and the flowers and all that but just broadly just being in nature without clinging to it and so of course you know meditations that arouse the bojangas you know that develop the jhanas are always helpful because they're rousing in nature before they go to the actual upeka the ones that arouse contemplation of the Dhamma, mm-hmm. arouse energy, and also uh, PP, the rapture, they're always very good for overcoming drowsiness. The other things one can do is actually read suttas and read them out loud because then you don't tend to get sleepy. Also listening to a Dhamma talk, or maybe even translating Buddha's words from Pali, that's also very good. Or even when you're drowsy, to take the time to memorize some of the gathas, the chants, uh, so that's also very useful. Now, when it comes to overeating, as we know, walking is very helpful, particularly after the meal. And when it comes to intentions around eating in order to be wakeful, one can plan the meal schedule. As in, you can plan something that, in terms of timing, so eat earlier. So no one's saying you have to only eat one meal a day. For lay people, we're entitled to eat throughout the day but the thing is if you want to cultivate eating in moderation then what's helpful is eating earlier if you remember if you take eight precepts in a monastery what you notice when you're on eight precepts is after the initial discomfort and once you get used to eight precepts the hunger pains go away and if you do get afflicted with hunger pains you can take a a medicine or a drink or what have you but what you notice is the mind is a lot lighter, the body is a lot lighter, you, you become less afflicted by the, the gross body. And so that's very conducive for the practice. Even something as simple as making your last meal earlier, that's very useful. For some lay people, they only eat two meals a day rather than three. And, and sometimes even not snacking, because snacking usually comes in when you need a distraction, like you experience dukkha of some sort, and so you resort to food or drink. 
that's 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 one aspect. The other aspect, as we've covered before, is eating with right view, and taking the time to chew, and to limit the t- the, the amount of talking while you're eating, and eating with gratitude. So those are some of the practical aspects about food and having an intention. You know, simply having an intention around food is is really really useful. So then we come to awakening from sleep alert, and usually with this, what we need is a strong intention because it's not easy to uh, wake up and get up straight away from the bed. And so you need to make a strong intention that this is something that you see benefit from and that you want to do. And so you need to go against the voice in your head that wants to keep uh, hitting the snooze button or to remain and sleep more. And it's a real hindrance. So it's not easy, but I think what you want to do is slowly introduce it. And gradually, the other thing you want to do is to reduce the amount of sleep. Now, we're told uh, from young that we need eight hours of sleep a night but clearly that's not true when you start to practice and brighten the mind what you notice is that you actually genuinely need less sleep and so over time if you're currently taking eight hours nine hours ten hours some people sleep more then quite clearly you can start reducing that and for some people it's reducing it by half an hour some people it's reducing it by an hour And over time, you get to a place where you understand your body rhythms, you understand what you need in order to do the work that you do every day, fulfill the responsibilities, but also have sufficient enough to function but not overdo it. And each person will be different, but you can work that out over time. Now, I know lay people who only function on five to six hours, but they're not working. They actually have devoted their time to Dhamma. So they haven't gone to the extreme of, of four hours or less. Some monastics do take less. They follow Buddha's actual words because they're not holding down a job and they don't have families to look after. But when it comes to lay people, if you have a family, especially a young family, that's different. And if you have a job, depending on what job it is, it could be extremely stressful. So the amount of sleep that you need to rejuvenate the body may be slightly more. And so you need to ascertain that for yourself. And I think it's good to make a schedule about what you want to do. So if you want to have a morning sit, if you don't make an intention towards that and plan for it by setting your alarm early, then you're not going to be able to do the morning sit. Likewise, if you want to do an evening walk, but you kind of don't factor that into your plans for cooking and fulfilling the evening responsibilities, then that won't be factored in either. So you need to actually consciously plan and make a schedule and, and make these adjustments to your lifestyle in a very conscious sense. Otherwise, they won't happen. Part of the thing about going to bed is if you want to wake up and immediately get up, you need to make that intention before you go to sleep. And make some of these intentions quite doable. Don't make them too high. Like, don't set the bar too high to start with. Set it at a doable level and see how you go. And increase it or decrease it depending on how you go. Because you don't want to mess up your life in in trying to walk the Buddha's path. You actually want to make it conducive so you find the right balance in order to walk the path, in order to continue the sacred training without hindering the other parts of your life where you have to earn money and look after others and be part of the community. So what do you do when wakefulness reduces? Well, My strong suggestion is always to not go with the initial 
hindrance that comes when wakefulness reduces, not to immediately respond to it, so wait and see what happens, and then see whether you need to apply Buddha's medicine, or see whether you can just overcome it there and then. Now, the thing I would strongly advise not to do is not to resort to distractions, because that immediately takes you out of right view. You just go with the old habit tendency, which is usually a bad habit. Initially, definitely don't go for the sense pleasure, whether it's food or drink or company or finding people to talk to or anything like that. If you really want to break the habit, you need to actually be with the discomfort, be with the hindrance, and actually then assess what do I need to apply now? What is the best medicine from my toolkit that Buddha has given me and apply it? And then check where the mind is pasturing for food through the senses. Where's the mind at? You know, where is it resorting to in the mind? Where is this discursive thinking? Where are the perceptions that are leading you to reduce the wakefulness? And when you acknowledge that you're indulging in the wrong pasture, the wrong place, that, that is giving you greedy thoughts or ill will thoughts or cruel thoughts, then you know what you can do from there. But it's only when you don't know and you don't acknowledge that it's unskillful that it will carry on and increase. The other thing to gladden the mind, which also helps when wakefulness reduces, is to recall past generous deeds. This is where you've done you know, a lot of wholesome things in the past, you know, all the dhanas, all the helping your neighbours, your, your helping the sangha for medicine, driving duties to help others, charitable deeds, uh, helping one's parents, leading certain things you know, at work that help the poor, you know, all kinds of things, helping people uh, when they're getting ready for an interview, word-checking things for someone who is illiterate. You know, there's all kinds of things that we do that is very generous, you know, sharing things from our garden with our neighbours. I mean, there's so many different kinds of things, you know, helping someone to cross the road. Usually what happens is when we recall the things that we do for others, the selfless deeds, the things that we've given up for ourselves that we do for others, it gladdens the mind. It's actually also reflecting on nekama, which is renunciation. It's a beautiful thing. And so what happens is the mind suffuses with, with happiness. When we do that, wakefulness is re-established. The other thing we can do, which is also quite practical, is to apply medicine. So Vatupama Sutta, going through the 16 stains in the mind, uh, as a checklist, Anumana Sutta, also going through the checklist of 16 items. There's many, many like that. And, and so you, you can actually do a checklist of where has my, my, my wakefulness reduced. And, and so in by doing it, and then by uh, doing the meditation, which says you don't intend to do it again, you lift the mind. As Buddha says in those suttas, you can actually go through Pamoja, the gladdening of the mind, then the sukha in the mind, the happiness, and then you have the tranquility, which is the pasada, or the pasadi, sorry. And then from that, you're able to concentrate the mind. So reviewing medicine for hindrances and defilements is, is very useful. Of course, one of the other things is associating with wise and wakeful people, virtuous people. If you keep the right company, then that's always very conducive to the path. That's why Buddha always recommends hanging out with sekas or with saparisas, people that are walking the Noble Eightfold Path. 
when you do so, you're basically around people who are aspiring to be virtuous. You're around people who are aspiring to develop wisdom. And you're also around people who are also on the same training. They're also training training for higher sila within their means and circumstances. They're also people that are memorizing and reflecting on Buddha's words. And so when you talk to them, they always tell you what Buddha's words are as a reminder, as a kind reminder, as a way of bringing joy to, to the other person. And they're all always doing their best to be a good example. Now, not all of us can be good examples all the time. We are still imperfect. And so it's also good not to be critical of our uh, Dhamma friends. We're all trying our best. And we haven't converged the formal meditation with the everyday life manifestation. That, that hasn't happened yet. We're all getting slightly better as we develop the path but we're not there yet and so I think we need to exert also some some kindness to our friends because they are good company as Buddha says we don't want to be around fools and there's one particular sutta that comes to mind which is the Upakilesa Sutta and you find that in Majjhima number 128 and in this sutta Buddha is saying it's always better to be around a wise and virtuous friend because that friend is an alert companion you know someone who has jagriyang this this wakefulness and if you can't find a friend like that Buddha says you'll be like a king who flees his kingdom when it's overrun and then the king wanders alone in the forest like a tusker Buddha is clearly saying that you'd rather be alone than to be around foolish people. There are no wise friends because a fool can't be a friend. Buddha's quite adamant. A fool can't be a friend. And so you're better off being alone. But if you do have wise friends, then those are like supports as well. And particularly friends that are practicing wakefulness who are making movements in that direction. You know, lay people who are actually trying to get up as soon as they awaken. Lay people who are not indulging in sleep, who are applying the medicine for sloth and torpor, who are actually trying to reduce the amount of activity and duties in order to support the path or trying to find balance in life in order to be able to do both. There's quite a few things there in um, Jagriyang to look at. I think there's a lot to contemplate and investigate in one's life in respect to the, uh, the Jagriya quality. But I think there's also a lot of suttas to do some research into and to see what the Buddha has said and then to actually apply medicine. I think the, the meditation for this is really around knowing what medicine to apply when the hindrances take hold and likewise when the defilements take hold. So for the hindrances... It's very much in those suttas I was talking about. And so that applies to sense, desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and also this doubt. And then with upakilesas, the defilements, you can use Vatupama Sutta or Anumana Sutta, Saleka Sutta, Anangana Sutta, they all apply as well. You could also do Karaniyametta Sutta because you do a lot of purifying in that meditation as well for Dasakusala. So yeah, that's also possible. So there you have it. That's what I'll, I'll leave it there when it comes to wakefulness and jagriya. And just know that this is a gradual process and whatever you can do is a step in the right direction. So we'll end the session here. So let's share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be well.
May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Wish you all well. Peruan Saranai.